This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that hasn't recorded in a while. I know. Well, it seems like, yeah, it's been like a month. There was our groovy Christmas episode that we did with Groovy Tube. Yes, in conjunction with. But now our hard times are behind us. I'm back in my house in Belgrade. So So moving took a while. There was an ordeal attached that I won't go into right now, but maybe some other time. That yes. it actually gave me fodder for my fourth mystery novel. Yeah, so you guys will have to read it to find out. And we're recording in Think Tank in Yarmouth, which yes. will probably be our, our major for recording place. For now. Since it's it's not really halfway between. Big time. It's not really halfway <laughs> between where we live. Or until, like, maybe sometimes you could drive up to Belgrade. Maybe. I can make you food. It's nice and quiet. There's no interstate highway within inches from the window roaring by like there is here. kitty cats. My kitty should be there by then. Oh. She's still at mom and dad's. Okay. I had to do a lot of painting and cleaning, and I didn't want to, especially I had to repaint the staircase and stuff and didn't want to do it. Have you ever tried to paint a staircase with a cat in the house? Yes. It it's just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. Okay. All right. So we so have... enough about you. <laughs> what else is there to talk about? But we have some updates. Okay. Good. So I have an update from our episode two. Oh, oh, so long ago. I over know. a year ago. That was over a year ago. Can you believe we've been doing this for over a year? I know. I know. And it's Todd Colehep, the South Ugh. Carolina serial killer slash mass murderer. Gross. And he was... In yeah, he said like a... I'll that I'll... Yeah, I'll address that in my update. Okay. He was arrested last year for, just a quick recap, they found a woman locked in a storage container on his property in South Carolina, and it turns out he had killed her boyfriend. He had killed a young couple in December 2015, a few months before that, and he confessed to killing four people in a motorcycle shop in 2003. Oh, wow. When he was sentenced in May to six, life in prison without parole, his public defender told the judge there are no other victims. Mr. Mm-hmm. Colehep has come clean, he said. But the profiler John Kelly told the Spartanburg Herald Journal at the time, this was in May, I absolutely positively believe there are other victims out there. These guys never give it all up. They always come back for various reasons. He also said it's rare to find somebody like Colehep who's a mass murderer where you kill a bunch of people at once and a serial killer. He has multiple where you kill it. Yes. But Kelly said, at the time, you're going to hear from him again. He pretty, oh, yeah. He and, loves attention. And so, sure enough, like the true psychopath Cole Hepp is, wrote in an eight-page letter to the Herald Journal, dated November 28th, that there were more than seven victims. Quote, I tried to tell investigators, and I did tell the FBI, but it was blown off. It's Hell not yeah, an addition. Sure. He, this is a, from his letter. It's not an addition problem. It's a multiplication problem. Oh, what does that mean? That he's got a ton more? I guess so. And he said it leaves the state and leaves the country. Thank you, private pilot's license. So what I think what ass. he's implying is that he traveled all around. over the world. And to he also kill wrote. People. At this point, I don't see the need to give numbers or locations. So what he wants to do is string people he along to, to continue to get along. Yes, he does. In an yeah. interview with the same paper in December, Spartanburg County Sheriff Chuck Wright, and if you remember from our episode two, which you may not remember, but Chuck Wright was not the brightest bulb in the law enforcement stratosphere. 
Um, but he said he was unaware of any specific unsolved homicides or missing persons cases related to Cole Hepp. And the paper pointed out that as a teenager, Cole Hepp was accused of sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl at gunpoint, yes, which we which had we talked about in our that. episode. And he spent 15 years in an Arizona state prison. He was convicted of kidnapping in the case. The sexual aspect of it was dropped as part of his plea deal. And... Kelly, the profiler, said he would be surprised if Cole Hepp had also committed other sex offenses between the time he was released from prison and his arrest. Kayla Brown, the woman who was found in the container on his property, was sexually assaulted. And Kelly points out he's a sexual sadist. And he predicted, as I said correctly, that Cole Hepp may take his time and then before he decides to, quote, throw some bait out there to law enforcement. That's what Kelly said back in May. Mm, so, and he said that Cole Hepp's guilty plea, which was in May, and I think at the time Cole Hepp said something like, and we had done an update in May too, that he wanted to spare the families by yeah. a trial. But Kelly said it was most likely an act of control to avoid the death penalty more than a demonstration of remorse. And he said, these guys have no empathy. They do not have the capacity, whether it's a mixture of genetics or a rough childhood environment. It's a them against society kind of mentality. So that's the latest on Todd Cole. Hep. Nice. And it probably Glad to hear from him. It won't be the last. Yeah, it probably won't. They be. love it, just like the one I did on David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. He likes to keep. Yeah, they attention. they wanna they want attention and they want to be in the spotlight. And that's part of the motivation for the way they kill people. Yeah, and that's part I of mean, the reason. The whole ritual of it and and them letting people. F- and that's one of the ways they get caught too. Yeah, because they don't want i mean they want people to know what they did yeah, in a lot of ways of isn't that nice and i have another update wow about <laughs> you're so good i know episode three ayla reynolds oh ayla the little, toddler little, from waterville who that disappeared was a, yes episode number three when ben so mccanna was our special guest so december 17th was the sixth anniversary of Ayla Reynolds' disappearance from her father's home in Waterville, Maine. Her mother, Trista Reynolds, this past fall, had a probate judge legally declare Ayla dead so she could file a wrongful death suit against Ayla's father, Justin DiPietro, in whose care Ayla, who was 20 months old at the time, was when she disappeared, and possibly others who were in the house at the time. Trista's attorney, William Childs, who took the case pro bono, told the Morning Sentinel in Waterville in December that he plans to file a civil lawsuit, but he didn't say when he would. He he said he's waiting for, quote, one more piece of evidence before he files it. Who knows what that is? And just a little recap, Ayla's father put her to bed on Friday, December 16, 2011, and he reported her missing when he went to wake her up on Saturday, December 17th, and she wasn't there. At the time, he was living in his mother's house in Waterville, and he was in his early 20s. She wasn't home that weekend, but also in the house with him were his girlfriend at the time and her baby and his sister and her baby, all people in the early 20s and their babies. Justin and the two others in the house say they think Ayla was abducted, but police quickly... After the biggest search in state history, although it's always the biggest search, I, know. I noticed that whenever that in state history said the people in the house haven't told the truth. And ten days after she was reported missing, they declared it a criminal investigation. They're still investigating it. They don't believe they'll find her alive. Her being declared dead by the probate judge earlier this year wasn't a big surprise to anyone. And the Sentinel reported that police are still getting leads. But as we know, what that means is they're getting tips. To me, a lead is something that leads yeah, to is, something. Yeah. A tip is somebody calling up and saying, I mm, saw somebody with Ayla know. in the supermarket. I mean, there were other people, and maybe their conscience will get to them. Who knows To me, how it's long a tip take. until it results in something, and then it's a lead. Yeah. 
a lead leads you to the truth. But they're still doing searches in the area. They haven't closed the case. So that's the latest animal update. And, you know, it seems like in a civil trial, other things can come out. But if they do ever find her, if they want to bring somebody... Her remains. Yeah, and if they want to prosecute somebody, the civil trial might somehow we'd have to ask a lawyer i'm not a, i'm not a lawyer but since we don't have one yeah here, we'll, we'll try to get matt um, back in 2018 it seems like having a civil court proceeding or whatever that brings stuff out might cause problems for the prosecution somehow. it could if you look at it this way a lot of reasons people do file a civil suit is not only to quote unquote bring justice but also so that things that haven't been made public in the investigation and other things will be made yes. public but what if the civil suit determines you know, it's a wrongful death suit determines Justin DiPietro's yes. guilty, and then police find evidence that someone else is. I know. You it, know. It, but, you know. It I, is what it is. Whatever. Okay. So, are you ready to present yes, your topic today? I am. I'm very okay. excited. Before I launch into my story, I want to give all the credit for this information to Portland Press-Herald reporter Colin Woodard. I got this story from his 29-part series that was in the paper a few years ago. The title is Unsettled. And you can find it in ebook form on where they sell ebooks. And his name is Colin Woodard. It's like Woodward without the W. Or if you go, if you just Google Press Herald Unsettled, it comes up. I don't think you need to have a subscription to read the whole thing because I don't. And I was able to read the whole thing again. Some things are in front of their paywall yeah. that they feel important. And that one is because people. it's a very interesting series. The story I'm going to tell is just part of it, of the series. A lot of it has to do with how Maine's Indian tribes were kind of screwed over yes. and and the events in, in my story happened over 50 years ago but i think that we can still relate unfortunately to a lot of the issues today yes and it delves into a lot of other stuff besides this one death the focus kind of during a lot of the series is don gellers who was a, an attorney he was kind of the unofficial attorney for the past Maquati tribe in the early 60s and, and later. He helped them with a lot of stuff. This was just one of the things he helped them with. And he died, um, I think, in 2014. He became a rabbi later in life. Hmm. He was a very interesting person. And the other thing I found interesting is one of the victims, not the murder victim, but there was a, another beating victim, in this story, his wife, Rita. Now, if I pronounce their name wrong, I'm sorry. It's either Altvater or Altvatar. It's A-L-T-V-A-T-E-R. I, I, don't I, I was thinking Altvatar. Hmm. If it's wrong, you can let me know. People, our many listeners. She, Rita Altvatar, wrote an account of the events for her kids. I'm not sure when she wrote it, but she died in 1994, and it was in a letter to all her children, and nobody had ever opened it until 2013. None of her kids opened the no letter? No one opened it or read it. They read it right before they gave it to Colin Woodard to read. So they didn't open it until 2013. That's when he read it, and I think he got a lot of the wow. information from this letter. I know, you'd think that they would be interested in reading it. I would think. But maybe it was, it was a very painful part of their their life. Yeah, but how did they know if they didn't open it and read it what it was about? I don't know. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. On the afternoon of November 15th, 1965, yeah, George Francis was sitting in his living room watching Canadian football on TV. And I had to look up Canadian football to yeah. make sure that I wasn't like confusing it with soccer. But it's actually like our football, but they have a bigger field, like 110 yards. Yeah, they yards, have different, yeah, there's different some different rules. things. And because Maine is surrounded on three sides yeah. by Canada, we get Canadian TV stations. Yes. And I also want to say at the beginning, I noticed as I was writing this, 
There's George Francis and his family. Their surname is Francis. Yes. The prosecutor's name was Francis, and the defense attorney's first name was Francis, and the defense attorney's first name Lots was Francis. Lots of Francis's. Francis, age 72, was the former governor of the Pleasant Point Passamaquoddy Reservation, located between the towns of Eastport and Perry, on Maine's very eastern tip on the shore of Passamaquoddy Bay. George's home was a small house on a hill right on the edge of the reservation. Also at the house that day were George's 17-year-old niece, Deanna, who lived with him, her two friends, Maureen Toma, 15, and Susan Toma, 14. The three girls were students at Shedd High School in Eastport. They were in the bedroom doing homework. George's younger brother, Peter, age 59, was visiting from Connecticut. George's neighbor, Christopher Alvatar, who was called Christy, called out to George that he had company. Christy was George's 44-year-old brother-in-law, and I think Rita, Christy's wife, was George's sister. I want to say, too, I know I keep interrupting myself, but there are many characters in this story. It was hard. It's hard to keep them straight. Yes. But everyone seems to be related, except for the, the company that we'll find out. So Christy was George's 44-year-old brother-in-law and lived close by, about 200 yards outside the reservation. The company Christie was referring to was a group of five men from Bill Rickon, Massachusetts, who came to the area to hunt. The men ranged in age from 23 to 32. The oldest was William Robbins, who had served in the U.S. Marines and had been a star high school football player. In fact, Bill Rickon Memorial High School still has a scholarship name for him. Mm. Driving the 1961 white convertible Cadillac was another former football player, 25-year-old James Ellenwood. It was his car. He had on his record a conviction for assault and battery. 23-year-old Danielle Fabrizi, who worked as a roofer, also had been convicted of assault and battery, as well as intoxication. Mm. I'm assuming public intoxication, because if he was drunk in his house, it wouldn't right. have been Who cares? 25-year-old Hugh O'Neill was also a former football player. 25-year-old Romolo Capobianco was married and had two kids. According to friends, he was funny, easygoing, and friendly. Mm. When the car first pulled up, Christy Alvatar was getting out of his car in his nearby driveway, and they pulled up to George's house, but he was nearby. The men, dressed in hunting gear, greeted him, having met him on a previous hunting trip. Christy did not remember them, however. Mm. Four years earlier, Christy had been attacked by a much larger white man, Christy was 5'2". The attacker was 6'1". He had been attacked in Eastport. I think he was hit with a baseball bat or something. Uh. He consequently suffered a brain injury, which left him with mild paralysis on the left side, headaches, dizzy spells, and memory issues. After Christy called for his brother-in-law, George came to the door and spoke with the group. He later testified, That's all they wanted to know, if I could get women for them. Mm. And I said, I ain't got no women here. <laughs> so you just, if you're out hunting, you just go knock on someone's, some well, Indian's door uh, I on mean, a reservation and ask if they have women. Apparently, but the thing is, they had met Christy before, so. It right, is, they met Christy before. Yeah, so I don't know. Or why, they said they had. But I don't know why they pulled up there, and uh, that's one of the things that I don't understand, and I'll talk a little more about it later. Okay. So. They also wanted to know where they could get beer on a Sunday. After George told them, they talked Christy into showing them the way. As they were about to leave, Deanna Francis, George's 17-year-old niece, came out of the house on an errand for her visiting Uncle Peter. 
She would later testify that the men stared at her. I bet they did. An hour and a half later, the six men, the five hunters and Christy, returned. They had two cases plus one six-pack of beer. But instead of dropping Christy off and leaving, the group entered the home without being invited. Christy and Peter Francis were taken aback, but tried to be friendly and diffuse the situation. They invited them to sit in the kitchen. George stayed in the living room watching football. Peter Francis had lived a hard life, and he looked it. As I said, he was 59 but looked older. He had served as a CB in World War II and once had to survive for days at sea on a life raft when his transport was torpedoed. He was like an engineer. Ugh. Another time, years later, he disappeared in the Maine woods in early winter. He'd gone to hunt moose, lost his way, and didn't come back till early spring. Wow. <laughs> he had spent the harsh winter living in his broken-down panel truck. He was definitely a survivor, but his body had not held up that well. His eyesight was going, and he had aches and pains that come with a rough life. He had a limp from an accident he got while working at the Navy shipyard in Groton, Connecticut. He was about to retire from his job there as a master electrician. Peter, Christy, and the five hunters sat in the kitchen and drank beer for an hour and a half. But the men hadn't given up on their hope to meet women. Mm. Daniel Fabrizi, the roofer... I wonder if that's why they came back, because they had seen the 17-year-old girl. Daniel Fabrizi, the roofer went into the bedroom to chat with the girls. Uh. He asked Deanna, do you want to make some fast money? She reported this to George, who told the men to stay away from the girls. Yeah. But Daniel couldn't stay away and kept bugging the girls. George told him to get out of his house or he was going to call the police. The hunters told Peter and Christy they were hungry. And the thing that strikes me is these guys just felt like they could just freaking walk into someone's right. house they don't even know. And it's because these are right. white guys and, and proposition these young girls, Yes, as you'll see. The hunters told Peter and Christy they were hungry. And see, I would have been like, well, maybe you should go get something Yeah, there's a McDonald's. As Peter's grandson, Randy Hinton, later told a reporter, In my culture, we share food and share spaces. These men took advantage of that. And I think there's also was kind of a deferential I think they, they, as a lot of minorities still do, you kind of go along to get along because you don't know what's going to happen if you don't. George asked his brother and brother-in-law to take the hunters to Christie's house, feed them, and get them out of there. Christie had drunk a couple beers. Peter had not had any. Christy Alvatar had been out of work since being severely beaten in 1960, and I'm assuming it was that same beating I talked about earlier. I couldn't find if he had been beaten twice or what. Um, he owed $1,000 in back taxes and was going through an eviction battle with the town of Perry. As I said, the reservation was between the town of Eastport and Perry. He lived over the reservation line in Perry. His brother-in-law, George, lived right inside the reservation line, right. which comes up later. A side note, he was being assisted pro bono by attorney Don Gullers, whose name will come up later. The Alvatar house was just outside the Pleasant Point Reservation, as I said. The four-square home was in disrepair, and a barn across the street had collapsed into a pile of boards full of rusty nails. Christie's daughter, Lisa, who was 10 at the time, recalled that they had never locked their doors, even though living off the reservation, they weren't protected. She said, our house was always open for people to come and eat. On the evening of November 14, 1965, Lisa and her mother, Rita, and eight-year-old brother, Kirk, came home with their uncle, John Nicholas, to find four of the hunters were sitting in the kitchen drinking. The other hunter, Daniel Fabrizi was in a downstairs bedroom talking with Peter and Christy about Peter's work on nuclear submarines. Two daughters, Valerie, 15, and Gerarda, 18, were in another bedroom doing homework. These girls are all just home doing Doing their homework. Well, it's Sunday, you know. know. (laughs) you got to get it done. Rita was none too pleased about the crowded situation in her home, and her son Kirk was very unhappy as well. And remember, Kirk was eight. Mm -hmm. The hunters told Rita they were looking for women. 
James Ellenwood, the children later called him the fat one, <laughs> kept asking, and he's the one whose car it was he was driving, kept asking where daughter Judy 16 was. He had heard she was pretty. He kept trying to go upstairs to see if she was there. She was not at home at the time. So it makes me wonder if they had been there before and knew people. I don't. Or if somebody had just said, "Hey, go, you know, if you go over to the Francis's house, oh, they have all these got, teenage yeah, daughter, of, and yeah, that's the one true. Judy's really pretty." That and, could be. You know. The atmosphere in the house was starting to get very tense. It reminds me of one of those movies where the situation makes you very uncomfortable yeah. and you know something bad is going to happen. Yes. It's like you've got all these people and right. these guys are being loud, obnoxious, they're drunk. Right. There's people some home invasion movies like that, yeah. aren't there? Yeah. Where, William Robbins, the 32-year-old ex-Marine, and he was kind of the supposedly the leader of the group. Although Marines will tell you there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Oh, Former, yeah, okay. Th- that they're still Marines <laughs> their entire lives. <laughs> he slapped little Kirk in the face several times and commanded him to go help your uncle. James Ellenwood befriended the boy and wanted him to go for a ride with him in the car, quote, shop for girls. The eight-year-old. Yeah, he wanted mm-hmm. the eight-year-old to come with him. Before anyone realized it, Kirk was sitting in the front seat of Ellenwood's car driving away with him. Oh, my God. This is probably about three in the afternoon. Wow. But it's November, probably cold and yeah, dark. Yeah, and getting dark. It's Eastport where the sun sets one yeah. of the most easternmost places in the United In the States. house, Fabrizi started to make loud, disparaging remarks about Peter. He didn't believe an Indian could do the kind of work Peter said he did at the shipyard. William Robbins started to make racial slurs about Indians. And then he and one of his buddies propositioned Gerarda you know, and Valerie using that, foul language. That's a lot of nerve to make racial slurs about the people whose house you're sitting and in. And whose hospitality they're feeding you. I know. Jerks. Rita, who died in 1994, as I said, wrote a letter to her children recounting the events of that day. She wrote, I was too uneasy. I did not remember having a phone to call for help or even the police. I felt like I could hardly move. I was so filled with a spirit of fear. I didn't know what to do. Peter came into the kitchen to start dinner. He spoke to the other Indians in Passamaquoddy. He said, I smell a rat. I don't trust these guys. Gee. I know. They are up to something. They keep trying to start trouble. Get the children ready and get them out. He told them he and Christy would feed the hunters, and maybe once the girls were gone, they would leave. Rita took the girls and left, going to her niece's house. The girls were relieved to be out of there and away from the, quote, scary men, as one of the girls called them. I don't blame them. Ellenwood and his young companion, Kirk, ended up back at George Francis's house. Ellenwood barged in and approached the 14-year-old girl, Susan Toma, wanting her to, quote, take a ride with him. She later testified that he said, we'll go slow. He demanded coffee. He gave Kirk a dime and kept sending him into the bedroom with messages for the girls. He offered Susan a dime to, quote, go out with him in the car. Mm. When she refused, he sent Kirk in to offer Maureen, Susan's 15-year-old sister, a dime for some company. She was like, no way. Finally, Ellenwood seemed to give up, went back to his car. But a few minutes later, Kirk was back telling Susan that her mother was at the door looking for her. But it was James Ellenwood. And he said, I want to take you for a ride. I want to take you first. Oh. She shut the door in his face. Good for her. Ellenwood, still with Kirk, drove around the reservation looking for girls. Kirk helped him talk Elsie Paul, 17 years old, into getting in the car with them. She believed that Kirk's sister wanted to see her. Ellenwood then drove back to Christy Alvatar's house. Meanwhile, back at Christy Alvatar's house, the hunters asked Peter Francis and Christy if they knew where they could get some pot. Christy gave William Robbins an aspirin as a joke, telling him it was a marijuana pill. <laughs> Robbins was not amused. No. And I guess Christy was known as kind of a prankster. Yeah, that's a funny joke. I don't joke. think it's kind of the right time to no. prank, but... 
Maybe he was trying to lighten the mood. Yeah, maybe. Then, according to Robin's later testimony, William Robin's the ex-Marine, Christy tore off his undershirt and came at Robin's, quote, like a raving maniac, his eyes as big as saucers. Just out of just, just out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. Bear in mind that William Robbins was the ex-Marine, former football star, and Christy was five foot two, physically impaired, and a, obviously five foot two. He was a small man, too. Right. He wasn't fat or, or rugged. He was like, there's a picture of him. He's like a little, you know, right. a little guy. Christy's version is that Robbins attacked him unprovoked about 10 minutes after he offered him the fake pot pill. Both men agreed that Robbins tackled and punched Christy in statements to police later. Mm. Peter came into the room and told the men there would be no fighting. Some of the hunters later said that Peter came into the room holding a chair over his head in a threatening way. It is his house. Well, not his house, but... It's his brother-in-law's. I think Rita is Peter's and George's sister. Right. But one of them also testified that Hugh O'Neill apologized to Peter for the fighting. So I don't think Peter was waving a chair around. If Peter was wielding a chair, it was probably because he felt... He was trying to get these guys out of there. And I know, and he, they weren't leaving. Yeah. They were just being assholes. Go. The four visitors left the house, followed by Peter and behind him, Christy. Just as they stepped outside, James Ellenwood pulled up in his Cadillac with Kirk and Elsie. Ellenwood turned to Elsie Paul and said, how about it? She's probably like, get the fuck away. Well, he's just such a romantic type. Elsie took this to mean he wanted her to go to the hunter's camp in Princeton which was about 45 minutes to an hour drive away. And interestingly enough, I noticed because I was looking at a map to see where everything was, Princeton is right near Maine's other Passamaquoddy Reservation, Indian Township. Yeah. So it's kind of weird that they had drove down to Pleasant Point. Like maybe they... Well, maybe because they had met Christy before. They said, let's go find that guy we met because he's got these nieces and, you know. I don't know. It was weird. But who knows? I mean, so much of his loss, you don't know. Or just lost in the reporting of the story. That's true. But a lot of it just wasn't reported, too. Both Elsie and Kirk, still in the car, saw three of the hunters across the street from the Alvatar house near the broken-down barn. Kirk saw them pick up pieces of wood. The hunters came toward the car so they could get in. Elsie opened the door and ran between two of the white men up the hill towards George Francis's house. James Ellenwood opened his door and yelled to her to come back. Kirk got out right after Elsie and was going to go around the back of the car towards his house. The hunters all got in the car. Daniel Fabrizi was so drunk he needed help they had to, like, put him in the car. Oh, jeez. And I was thinking, but with all those people, they and must two have been cases of beer. I'm they assuming have, they had beer with them they and they ran out. They must have had flasks, out. or maybe they had flasks, yeah. and they wanted the beer to chase it. a bunch of big guys. I right, mean, and they got two cases and a six-pack of beer, yeah. so it's like... They were super lightweight. I'm assuming they had alcohol with them, yeah. and then they needed more. Right. Know. Maybe they were thirsty. You can never have enough. <laughs> As Kirk came around the back of the car, they got in the car. James Ellenwood was standing on the driver's side of the car, the door open. Peter Francis, unarmed, according to Kirk, approached him, and they argued. Kirk also saw Christie walking behind the car. According to his own later testimony, Christie saw a four-foot board or stick lying in the driveway, so he picked it up, walked across the road, and tossed it next to the barn where there was a brush pile. Kirk, standing behind the car, saw James Ellenwood strike Peter Francis with something. The boy thought it was a knife. I, I don't think it was. It was a stick, though. Peter had not done anything to provoke the attack, according to Kirk. At least three of the other men got out of the car and attacked Christy. I'm assuming Daniel Fabrizi didn't because he was Because he was too passed out. Kirk saw the group of white men, one with a sticker aboard, at least one of them had a sticker aboard, beat his father, who fell to the ground as they continued to kick and beat him. Kirk screamed, stop. At Ellenwood's command, the men got back in the car and the car sped away. 
A frightened, panicked Kirk ran back to his house, Christy Fowler barely able to walk. Peter lay face down in the road, bleeding from his head. A board full of nails lay nearby, covered in his blood. His hair was stuck to a splinter of wood lying nearby. Ugh. Christy Altvatar called for help, but Eastport police would not come because he lived a thousand yards from the town line. Because he lived in Perry. Whoever he spoke to said that he didn't want to get involved. The deputy sheriff would not respond to him at all. So finally he called the lawyer who had been helping him with his legal matters, Don Gellers. It took a lot of pleading for the hospital in Eastport to send an ambulance. But when it finally arrived, Peter had been lying in the road for more than an hour. Jesus. He died the next morning in the hospital. The county attorney, which is similar to today's district attorney, Francis Brown, had interviewed the hunters and had drawn up five murder warrants. The warrants had not been served. Don Gellers accused Brown of flouting the law and said if the victims were white, there would be no hesitation in serving the warrants. Don said if the warrants were not served by 6 p.m. Tuesday, he would call the press. They weren't served. Gellers was true to his word. He called Portland Press-Herald reporter William Williamson mm. Tuesday evening and told him the whole story. William Williamson had a reputation for being the type of reporter who wasn't afraid to take on a cause. He later became a social worker, and his family recounted a story of how he once dared an armed man to shoot him as he entered a home to get a child who was in danger. He didn't give a shit. Gellers figured the story was right up Williamson's alley. Gellers himself was a crusader, having come to Maine from Queens, New York, in 1963, to find more meaning in life, mm. as many others have done before and after him, because Maine is such a Maine's place. that kind of place. His wife was an artist, he an idealistic lawyer, both in their late 20s when they came here. His story is fascinating, but I can't, I don't really have time to get into it, but I'll say by the time he took up the Peter Francis cause, he had already become the unofficial Passamaquoddy lawyer, and a lot of his story can be found in in the series. And he lived in Eastport, right? He lived in Eastport, yeah. yes. The day after Gellers called Williamson, the Press Herald ran the story. A few days later, Williamson was in Pleasant Point trying to get some answers. By then, the hunters were all back home in Bill Ricca. The only one charged with a crime had been James Ellenwood. He had been charged with manslaughter and the death of Peter Francis. He had been freed on bail and allowed to return to Massachusetts. Hmm. I can't remember if you said this, but Eastport is in Washington County, which is way... Down east, like it's not near Portland, even though the Press no, Herald. No, it's not near wrote. Portland. We didn't really say it. I said it was the eastern it's tip way, of Maine, like, but it is quite a ways. Right. If you look at a map of Maine and just it's go the all the point. way up the coast to where Maine and New Brunswick meet, that's where Eastport is. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Washington County Bar Association was threatening Don Gellers with disbarment for going to the press. According to Geller's later account, they said they would leave him alone if he would claim in writing that he had been misquoted. He said, no way. What? So he was supposed to lie about yeah. being misquoted? He said he would, quote, continue to do all I could to protect Indian lives and property because as long as those two things weren't safe, the value of everyone's life and property was thereby cheapened. And he ended up keeping his law license. Yeah. Well, I, think I don't he think lost you can. Later, but. Yeah, I don't think. Well, they were given... They didn't like him. They no. didn't like him by then. They really didn't like right. him. Right. I mean, it was just... He was in a constant battle. He just had a regular practice when he first came to Eastport. Right. He started championing the Indians' causes, and he lost all his white clients. Right, because nobody else would represent the Indians. And he, he did quite a bit. The Passamaquoddy that Williamson spoke with were very upset that four of the men had not been charged with anything and that no one had been charged with murder. In the previous 17 years, six of the Pleasant Point Passamaquoddy had been killed, 
and a population of 330 people, and not one person had been charged. Hmm. Williamson wrote in his story, one of his stories, he wrote a series, is the Indian testimony being considered seriously, and is the law being applied fully in the case? Are they second-class citizens, legally as well as socially? County Attorney Francis Brown said he did not serve the murder warrants because he didn't feel like he could prove premeditation. But Don Geller said that, according to Maine law, the fact that Peter Francis had been killed with a weapon in the form of a nail-studded board constituted malice and forethought under the murder statute. And because the group of them participated in the attack, it didn't matter who had actually held the weapon. And the hunters were involved in a felonious conspiracy before they attacked Christy and Peter because they offered the girls money for sex. Mm-hmm. So I guess that has to do with the statute, too. I mean, right. the way it's written. Williamson got Brown, Francis Brown, to admit that he had told the hunters two days before the arraignment what charges would be brought and what the bail would be which gave the four others time to drive back to Bill Ricca, get the bail money for Ellenwood so they could get him out of jail right away. Hmm. County Attorney Francis Brown said a murder charge would be, quote, merely wasting the taxpayer's money. Hmm. We don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, if you go by that logic, pretty much, why even prosecute anybody? I know. Because it does cost a lot of money. Yeah. Though the past McQuaddy were pissed about the turn of events, none of them believed that there would be a conviction in the case. They were surprised any charges had been brought at all. Still, they were starting to get fed up. Tribal Constable Raymond Moore is quoted in a December 5, 1965 Press Herald story, We're tired of being treated like cattle or dogs. There have just been too many deaths and nothing is ever done about them. Gellers worked with George Francis to get national attention for the case. They wrote to U.S. Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina, who was chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights. Though Irvin demanded an accounting of the matter from Maine's attorney general, he decided because the killing had not occurred on the reservation and Francis was not doing anything related to civil rights, it was not in his committee's jurisdiction. The National Council of Churches took an interest in the case and asked U.S. Senators Edmund Muskie and Margaret J. Smith, our main senators, our two main senators, who we're all very proud of, yes, and the Justice Department to investigate. The Reverend J. Oscar Lee, speaking for the National Council of Churches, said, quote, The denial of justice in Maine is as serious as the denial of justice in Alabama or Mississippi. A delegation from the Maine Council of Churches met with Brown in January and expressed their dissatisfaction with his lame explanation of why murder warrants were not served. Hmm. They also visited Attorney General Richard J. Dubord's office, wanting to know what he was going to do about it. Yeah. Dubard said that, quote, secret indictments were likely hmm. to be brought, but they never were. They were so secret, nobody ever saw them. <laughs> Very secret. Even Walter Cronkite reported on the case. Ooh. If you are too young to remember him, he was the anchor on the CBS Evening News and, quote, the most trusted man in America. Well, he was considered the authority on everything People that happened. People did trust him, mm-hmm. I'll tell you that. And I remember him because he, when did he stop? Mid-70s, maybe? Possibly, Dan took yeah. over. And I love Dan Rather, too. Me, too. None of that made any difference. In February 1966, the all-white grand jury returned one indictment, manslaughter, for James Ellenwood. He pled not guilty. None of the others faced any charges. The trial began on March 1, 1966, at the Washington County Superior Court in Machias, Maine. Rita Alvatar, Christie's wife, and Lila Hinton, who was the daughter of the victim, Peter Francis, came into a courtroom simmering with hostility. Mm. They weren't simmering, the courtroom was. 
Lila asked Rita to point out the hunters, and she did. Lila approached the men and said, So you're the five hunters who killed my father. Good for her. According to Rita, they said yes and snickered. <laughs> During a court recess, one of them walked by and said, A good Indian is a dead Indian. You know what that reminds me a little of is Emmett Till's trial in Mississippi. Uh, very similar things happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, not Emmett Till, the trial of the men who killed Emmett Till. Yes. Yeah. So he said a good Indian is a dead Indian, and causing Lila, who was age 33, to burst into tears. However, at another point in the trial, Romolo Capobianco came up to Lila and said, quote, I'm sorry that all this had to happen. And Rita says that he told Lila that he would talk to her and tell her about it, but for now he had to stick by them. Yeah, well, it didn't have to happen. No, it didn't. When Peter's wife, Isabel, arrived late to court one day, she was stopped and told to sit down or leave. But when a white woman came in a few minutes later, they found a chair for her to sit in. James Ellenwood was now 26, and according to the Portland Press Herald, he, quote, appeared confident throughout the trial. I bet he did. Why wouldn't he? By the second day of the trial... It was clear to the Indians that the county attorney didn't really give a shit and was not asking a lot of questions he should have. Deanna Francis, Peter's niece, who is now 18, said she hadn't been asked to testify about the hunters offering her money for sex, though she had testified to it before the grand jury a few weeks prior. When John Nicholas, Rita's brother, tried to talk about some of the events of the evening, Brown cut him off. Hmm. The splinter with Peter Francis's hair stuck to what was not introduced into evidence because that would have required calling an expert witness and would have been, quote, too expensive. When William Williamson reported these concerns in the Press Herald March 3rd, he was called to the office of the Press Herald's attorney and ordered to write only about the court proceedings themselves, not about what people thought of them. Hmm. This was according to Don Geller's account of the trial. Williamson's series of articles in the case received an award from the Associated Press. But not long after the trial, he left his job. Don Gellers and Rita Alvatar said it was because he didn't like the interference. Williamson's son Barry said, He quit the paper because they really wouldn't let him report what was happening. He had a strong sense of injustice, and that case fell right into the pocket of that. Kirk, Rita, and Christie's son was the only eyewitness to the fight between James Ellenwood and Peter Francis. He testified on his ninth birthday. English was his second language, and his family later said he was humiliated in court for the way he spoke. The hunters testified that they had not propositioned anyone. They said they had acted in self-defense when they beat Peter and Christie. The white men said the two Indians had come at them with clubs. They couldn't explain why they didn't just drive away since all of them were in the car, except Ellenwood, who was right at the open driver's side door. Yeah. So it's not really self-defense. No. Ellenwood said he only, quote, stiff-armed Peter once. What's stiff-armed? When you go like, oh, okay, you okay. hold your arm out oh. to keep somebody from coming yeah, close I'll to you. I get it, no. Although in his police statements, right after, he admitted to punching him at least twice. Mm. But when he testified, it was different. And, and no one asked him why it was different, because, you know. Why bother? And as we know, it's always, whenever someone kills somebody, their version of what happened is always played down. And that they're the only ones that right. the other person's dead. The attending physician and a pathologist told the court that Peter's injuries were consistent with being hit by a two-by-four. The fatal blows were to his temple and the back of his head. His scalp had become detached from his skull. Oh. The blunt force trauma to his head caused a brain hemorrhage, and he also had bruised eye and a hand and some other injuries. Earlier in the trial, the defense attorney, Francis Day of Bangor, so another Francis, had said there was a drunken brawl 
but the pathologist's report showed little, if any, alcohol in Peter's system. He also suggested it was Christy who hit Peter with the board. Having some drunken Indian fight, I guess. Right. You know? Well, the white guys stood around Although, and I will say in Maine, it's not, it's not Indians. It's white people. Who get into drunken fights and kill each yes. other. Yeah. It's a very common murder. It is, yeah. When the all-white jury found James Ellenwood not guilty, the court Machias applauded. Huh. Deanna said... They were literally clapping and cheering when Ellenwood and those guys were freed. This was later in an uh, interview. She expressed the pain of carrying that all these years. Yeah. Christie's daughter Lisa said that Uncle George was devastated. Our lives were destroyed. Peter Francis's great-grandson is Michael Corey Francis Hinton, who's about 30 now. He's an Indian law attorney at Aiken Gum. He said, there's been no justice and irreparable harm has been done to my family. The damage is done and it's still affecting people. Generations of my family, the Altvatars, and others in the community. This is the fire that burns within me. Mm. There will be justice done. The events that happened on that evening over 50 years ago helped shape his career choice. Yeah, Aiken Gump is one of the biggest law firms in the world. Mm. It's a New York-based one. They don't have a branch here in Maine. They pay too much. (laughs) Michael Corey's father, Randy Hinton, said, The tragedy of this isn't just the murder. It's all the fallout and all the collateral injustice and pain and anger that revolves around that night. Justice was never served, and those guys got away with murder. As for the hunters, William Robbins died in 2009. Colin Woodard tried to interview the rest of them. Romolo Capobianco said, Jesus, I don't know. That was a long time ago. It's all been forgotten. And then he said he By couldn't them. remember who he was with or much else because he was too old. Daniel, for uh, how old would he be now? He was in like 25. So he's like our parents' age. Yeah. yeah. And you can't remember an incident in which a guy died? No. Daniel Fabrizi told Woodard he was a blackout drinker back then <laughs> and couldn't remember much of that day, except he had tried to get out of the car to get a shoe that William Robbins had dropped, but his companions pulled him back in the car. So not the same impact as the victims, definitely. Ellenwood and Hugh O'Neill couldn't be reached. Christy Altvatar never really recovered from the beating, according to his family. He hanged himself in 1971. This is the saddest part. Kirk suffered severe panic attacks the rest of his life, developed a stutter, and his hands shook. He committed suicide in 1979 at age 21. Aww. And even though this was a pretty high-profile case for its time, all that remains in the main state archives from the case are three items. Two random motions and the one-page form that recorded the verdict. The formal judgment isn't there. The files were destroyed in Machias before they were sent to the main archives. And that's my story. Wow. Well, Colin Woodard's story that I summarized. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, thanks, Colin Woodard. Um, for yeah. doing all the work for me. And what people maybe who aren't from or don't live in Maine maybe don't realize is, you know, Maine, as we've said before, is the whitest state mm-hmm. in the Union. But we have four Indian tribes. They're the Wabnaki, the Passamaquoddy, the Penobscot, the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet. and the Maliseet. And there's been, since that happened, so in the past 50 years, there were... A lot of lawsuits because their land was taken away. The kids were taken out of the and that, house. And that series goes into all of that. Yeah. And it's funny because Don Geller's worked his ass off. Yeah. And he went back to before Maine was, when Maine was part of Massachusetts, 
how far back the treaties went yeah, and what they said. Yeah. And and there was a lot of money that was owed to the tribes that they never got, and no one knew what happened yeah. to it. And, and it's just a long, involved And in the story. 70s, when we were growing up in Augusta, a lot of that was going on. Yes, it was. And there was a lot of resentment by white people. There was. And it, there still is. There still is. If and you it, live up in that area. And there's also, you know, with no recognition at all of what happened or, oh, gee, it happened so long ago. And there's still, like, Skowhegan High School is still the Indians. And Mulian Smith is head of the Maine's Not Your Mascot group. And she's been trying for several years to get them to change to another name. And other schools and other places had. But the things people say, and it's another case of... If you're not in the group that's being insulted, it's really not your place to say whether the name is and insulting also, or not. And it's also, a, it's a mascot. How important is that to you? Well, and I love it's the argument. Yeah, I love the argument by the people who've gone to the school. Oh, it's our heritage. It's our tradition. And it's like, so that's more important than offending or the insults that have been heaped on this group. In fact, my college, Holy Cross, is the Crusaders, and the Crusaders, Christian Crusaders, killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims, and the school is now exploring whether to change the name uh-huh. from Crusaders. And an alum of the school who writes sports for the Boston Globe, and he's a very well-known sports writer, wrote a column talking to former Holy Cross athletes Bob Cousy and Tommy Heinsohn, basketball mm-hmm. players, yeah. and people like that. And they all kind of agree that there's no good reason to get rid of the Crusader name. And one thing about Holy Cross, it's a, it's a Catholic college. It's a Jesuit college, and one of the traditions is tolerance and understanding. They have a big Holocaust thing there. And I would say in the Holy Cross tradition, you would be respectful enough of Muslims to not want your mascot to be yeah. somebody who Those slaughtered who them. I mean, what if you had the... You can still be the Purple Knights. Yeah. You can still have the knight on the horse. You don't have to be Crusaders. Yeah, I know. But it offends me as, you know, a white privileged person when a white privileged person writes a column and there's been a lot of it about the Indians in Maine too saying you know we thought about this and we don't see a reason to change the name there's no reason in other words we still don't understand why and you're not trying to understand right I mean even if you don't understand just take them at their word yeah it's not a big deal it's a fucking mascot right it's, you know, I it's, mean, and plenty of schools have done and it's it. The perception Dartmouth, of things, right? Uh, plenty of colleges and high schools have changed their names and mascots. No harm done. You know, it doesn't change that winning touchdown you scored in the big game 30 years ago. It it doesn't change anything, except for it shows that you have a little understanding and tolerance of people who have been crapped on for thousands of I know. years. I'm actually coincidentally reading a book called. Killers of the Flower Moon that our sister Liz gave me for Christmas. She gave it to me as an early Christmas oh, present because nice I needed something to read. Hi, Liz. At least Liz listens to us. By Yes, by a man named our David. Our only family member that actually listens. Right. It's a very good book. It's by David Gann, and it's about how in the, in the turn of the 1800s, 1900s, the Osage Indians were kind of pushed out of Kansas into this just awful yeah. part of Oklahoma. But then it turned out that the land that they were forced onto was over some of the richest oh, oil. Of course. So the Osage people had the rights to this oil. 
and they could lease their land the way it happens. But then somebody started murdering them. Uh, and one of the things, one of the interesting things that the U.S. government set up was they felt that the Indians weren't qualified to handle their own money and would appoint white guardians to handle their money and give them an allowance. Like there were cases where somebody needed medicine for their sick kid and the guy wouldn't give them that type of thing. And it's funny because the ones who were allowed to, because they had, I can't remember who it was, make a decision. And like the more Indian blood you had, the less right you had to control your own money. But there were some who made, who managed to retain theirs, um, who made very shrewd investments and stuff they obviously knew. And nobody was managing the money of white people who would gamble it all away or drink it all it's away. It's just so... It just, but an, somebody uh, was murdering, uh, and I haven't finished the book, but it's kind of it's also kind of about how the FBI formed... Because the FBI, because you couldn't trust the law enforcement, because they were all in on this thing, there were several murders, and the response to the murders was kind of not... Well, one guy's like house was blown up. Well, civil rights era, too. I right. mean, it's the same right. thing. Right. Yeah. A guy's house with he, his wife, and their maid, who was actually white, where it was blown up. All sorts of stuff. Oh, my God. It's a very good book, and I know that was 100 years ago, and the one you just talked about was 50 years ago. But a lot of the attitudes that led to that don't change. It's amazing how things have not changed sometimes. Yeah. You could have the same conversation with people that today. Yeah. But, you know, and but it's, it's, you have to talk about it, too. You do. The more you talk about it, the more things will change. People don't want... I know it's uncomfortable to talk about. Right. For a lot of people, especially if you're white and, yeah. and you don't feel like you're... I don't feel like I'm biased about things or... But I don't know. And if but, someone but has But we to haven't had me. that experience. But I no, am... No, but I, I, I hope I'm enlightened enough to realize that if somebody says... I, right. Oh, my God. Okay. Right. You know? The symbol that you use that's this trivialization of my culture bothers me. I know. Then... Or... You know, at least I know enough not to stand in front of a photo of Andrew Jackson and refer to somebody with Indian heritage as Pocahontas. But in any case, that was a very good report. Thank you. Thank you, teacher. The only thing, I wish we knew more. You know, I wish we knew more. I wish we knew more about why they were there. For the five guys from Bill Ricca... They, uh, right. My guess is, life because, right. well, they had beat people, you know, a couple of them were, had assault, right. you know. That's another thing that people don't look at is that a history of violence will lead to more Especially drunken violence. violence. Yeah. But, you know, I, I remember, um, football players getting away with what they want. I was just thinking about, there was a guy I, um, I didn't know very well. He was older than me. He was in a class in college. He was probably in his mid to late 30s. And he died. He got in a bar fight. Somebody insulted his wife or something. He was drinking. The other guy was drinking. The guy, they got in a fight where they punched each other. And he had one of those brain injuries that seemed okay. And then he died. Oh, yeah. Like, what's her name? Natasha Richardson. Yes, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and um, I was thinking, you know, you don't think about it, but any time you're in a fight, there is a possibility that you could kill somebody or be killed. You right. don't know. But and it's true, too. Like, I've never... I've never been in a Been in one fight. except for, like... Believe stupid, it or not. Stupid sibling, like, <laughs> yeah, slappy but fights. Slappy, but not but like, also, I don't think many of the, the men I know have really been in they're fights. They're wimpy. I'm surprised that some of the men we know haven't been punched in the face. Right. Okay. Yes. But. Some we were related <laughs> to. Also, just that air of entitlement and privilege they had. You know, it's probably a thing where they heard or there's they, teenage yeah. girls. Or they heard there's a lot of women around there. Right. I mean, so maybe somebody from the from the um, 
the Indian Township Reservation. It's like, oh, go down yeah, to the Pleasant, yeah, go down Point. Pleasant Point. Point. But the other thing, too, is it may have been a case of their assumptions based on stereotypes and prejudice. Oh, well, those Indian women, you know, offer them a diamond. They'll give yeah, you a blowjob, you know, kind of thing. It's like you know, and they're not missiles. human. It's dehumanizing. No, not, I'm sure they didn't respect women anyway, no. but and that's just a little no, even and, and, But it is level. just, I felt like the entitlement they had that you would just like... They walk into someone's house. Walk, they, they weren't invited. They just come in and sit down, and they want to be served. They want coffee. They want food. They were hungry. I know. You know, get us some food. I mean, like, fuck you. I know. And then the, these poor people are stuck with these five louts in their house, and they're insulting them. And it's yeah, awful. and it did. It reminded me of like a bad, like a one of those movies where you're like, oh my god, one of those bad home happen? invasion movies. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of one, but I can't think of what well, it what is. What about that? What was that one? Albino alligator. Did you ever see no. that one? No. Something like that, where it's just like, you know, there's just like this tension, and you're just like, oh, I just want these guys to get out of here. You yeah. Know? But, but yes, anyway, okay, well, thanks. <laughs> Last night, before we recorded this, and this isn't our recommendation, but we're just going to talk briefly about her, Sue Grafton, the mystery writer, died, and people may recognize her as the author of the Alphabet series, which started That was with genius, except then she stuck a with is for I. Well, I read in her obit today that it was based on that Edward Gorey poem. Oh. With all the kids dying and that I'm sure people wouldn't get for their kids today because they're... But she was... I have to say, I've read all her books. And it's funny because I used to wonder what would happen when she got to Z. And it never occurred to me. She ended with Y and her daughter said she didn't like ghostwriters. And some people may not realize this, but there are some very, very big writers out there who just do outlines and people... Like you? Yeah, like me. I wouldn't do that because well, writing's so, my you're passion. You're so popular. Writing's my passion. No, James Patterson, for instance, yeah, where they do outlines and somebody else writes the books. And and he's now started having James Patterson with blah, yes. blah, blah, blah. There were some, and I was at a Crime Bake conference a few years ago where Dennis Lehane just went on a rant about that. Yeah, he didn't name, I don't blame him. But in any case, so she's ending with why because Z wasn't written yet and her yeah. daughter said Z won't be. And she had had cancer for two years. Which I didn't realize. I don't think she told anybody. And. And she was a guest speaker at Crime Bake, I want to say, two or three years ago. Maybe it was longer. I just want to say, I, you know, I read a lot of mystery novels. And I read all her books. And I won't say she was one of my favorites, but her books were, I don't want to say easy to read. But I enjoyed, it was a reliable... Right. You knew that when you got it, it was going to be a good... And, yeah, and one thing I liked about her books, she started writing in the early 80s. And she had a female protagonist who was tough but flawed, and flawed in a flawed way, not flawed in the way some people are, where they're like their boobs are too big and they're too thin, right? Or they're too, or men just love them too much, or something like that. Fighting the men off all the time. And she's, you know, she had financial issues and she had love issues, and she was one of the first writers, at least that I read, that had a more relatable female protagonist. And I felt in that way it Kinsey helped. Kinsey Milhone. Kinsey Milhone helped, and it helped with my envisioning how I wanted and I to didn't write read mysteries. all. I haven't read all of her books. I've read a, quite a few of them. I do like her. Yes. I mean, 
And it's, and it's too bad, yeah, when somebody who... And she wasn't the... I mean, she was the 77. 77. I yeah. mean, to me, that's not that... The older you get, the... So that's just our little R.I.P. Yes. for Sue Grafton. And Rest in peace. Do you want me to do my recommendation first? Because sure. you're... We don't know what tell each other's me, doing. No, because I just thought of mine, and you won't tell me what... I don't want you to judge me. Yes. So. Oh, I, I'll judge you <laughs> no matter what. So mine is, some people may be aware that there's a movie out right now, The Post, about how the Washington Post published yeah. the Pentagon papers which would be great seeing a double feature with like all the president's men and maybe spotlight you know throw them all in there but i'd like to recommend a documentary that they've been showing recently on msnbc but i bought several years ago when it was released on dvd called the most dangerous man in america about daniel ellsberg who is the guy who worked for the cia who released the pentagon papers and he was a very gung-ho, he was a war analyst and very gung-ho. He realized in the late 60s through the work he was doing that the American people were being lied to about what was going on in the war. And he had thousands and thousands and thousands of, he had done this big report for Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of War under Lyndon Johnson, that showed how a lot of this was a big lie. And he first went to Congress and tried to get people to do something Hmm. and nobody would and finally in frustration he went to the press the new york times first printed it and then there was an injunction and so then the washington times picked it up i mean the washington post sorry Hmm. and then other papers within a few days so many papers printed them that they couldn't stop it which is the power of the press but he fully expected to go to prison for doing that for treason and he had two kids who i think at the time were 12, 13, 14, but he was going to go to prison for what he felt was a principle. And it's a very good documentary, and it really looks at his thought process and how he went from supporting being an advocate of the Vietnam War to seeing what an issue it was. And if you don't know a lot about the Vietnam War or what happened, it's a really they good documentary watch to watch. Burns. What's that? I said it, it, they can also watch Kim Burns after that, and then they'll have even His more. lengthy documentary, which I haven't even watched yet. No, but Well, there's another documentary, Hearts and Minds, that yes, was, that was suppressed in the 70s yeah. and came out. But what I want to say about The Most Dangerous Man in America, too, is one of the interesting things about it is when Daniel Ellsberg, this happened leading up to the 1972 presidential election, and he felt people would be appalled enough Hmm. that Nixon wouldn't win the election, and people were appalled, but they still voted for Nixon, and he won in the biggest landslide in American history, and so it kind of goes to show... You you mean Donald Trump didn't win in the biggest landslide? No, no, he he said he did, but, you know, it was just this close, (laughs) but it it just goes to show that people, and now looking back, I think a lot more people are appalled about Vietnam and what really happened and why we were in that war than were at the time. But it shows how slow people are to kind of catch on to how they're being lied to or manipulated by the government. And that documentary is a great lesson about that, but also a lesson about the press and its role and about a free press and that, ooh, hey, wait a minute, the government can't take out an injunction and force you not to print things. But anyway, that's my recommendation. The Most Dangerous Man in America. You can find it on DVD. They've showed it a couple times in the past couple weeks on MSNBC. Well, it's still a lot of it is what's going on today. It's kind of people need to be reminded. Yes. They need to be reminded 
what the press is for, that you you cannot suppress information that way, no. and the government should not be controlling what is printed in the press. Right, and also for people who think, oh, but maybe the government should, you have to understand that the government works for you, and it's important to know what the government is doing. Don't don't fully trust the government to have your best interests in mind. And don't fully trust the government to tell you the truth. And the press being free is supposed to be one of the checks and balances. And also, of that. I get really annoyed when people assume that things that the press are writing are false. You which, get annoyed. Which they have done even before this most recent era. People would go, they just try to sell and newspapers, someone who's, or they just make stuff up. As someone who's no, been a journalist don't. for decades, I could say people make, reporters make mistakes. And I've said before on this podcast, the big biggest problem in the press is lazy reporting that doesn't fully examine something or doesn't ask the right questions, but I have never, ever known of a case of the press and we did, yes, we did printing talk about, something that was deliberately I false. I mean, the, it is, it's not easy to make something. When up. a reporter, when it's like it's big news. a cardinal sin, yeah, if you're a journalist and if that happens. If you're a real journalist. So now mine is going to seem really, really bad Oh, good, to good. Yours. I'm looking forward to really it. Really trashy. So I have Hulu for now until, <laughs> until they realize that. Until they I, cut you off, Which baby. Netflix is my Netflix. Yeah, so is mine, but mine will come like, back on next Hannah's week. Hannah's like, why can't we watch the British Baking Show? It won't let me. Say, so do you have nine ninety nine, kid? <laughs> I was like, got to wait till my paycheck. Anyways, but Hulu is still around. So I was I was watching Hulu recently, and for <laughs> some reason, the show Catfish from MTV that I've never seen. I was like, why I, did you think I would judge you? For I don't Catfish? know. I started watching it. It's funny too because I did not make the connection of how many episodes ago was it? Two episodes ago, three that I did the Nicole Cable murder right. when she was catfished. catfished. yeah. But I didn't even, like, make the connection. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, I've never seen this show. So I started watching it. And I, I watched, used to be obsessed with Catfish. I watched all six seasons of it. See, I haven't watched it in a few years, but I used to be obsessed. Um, they, some, of the, some of the episodes are not on Hulu. I'm not why sure why. Why don't you explain a little for people who so may not be... So it's based on the guy that's kind of one of the guys in the show, Neve Schulman. He was actually catfished. His brother's a documentary filmmaker, and Neve had this... Um, online relationship with a supposedly perfect woman, which should should, should be a red flag. Yeah, people, you're not that great. And if they're that great, they're not looking for people online. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> so that was a an independent film, which I've never seen. It got a lot of allocated. Catfish. Yeah, catfish. Because Catfish is presenting yourself online. As somebody that who you're not. Yeah. And luring people. Yes. They decided they were going to do this show on MTV. And I got hooked on the show. I got and the premise hooked, of the show. Line and sinker. There are things, of course, it's a reality show, so there are things presented in such a way that they're not Somebody real. wants, I need to watch a documentary about that, about how reality shows. I'd love to see that. I would like, like, House Hunters or something. And so I'll tell you how the show is presented, and I'll tell you what I've read because I, of course, got interested. And in also how tell they make us why show. you like it. Oh, I guess I definitely will do that. The format of the show is the same through all six seasons. Neve Schulman and his friend Max Joseph, who's is a filmmaker and is actually a friend of his brother's. I'll talk about it later and what I like about the show, but they have they do have a definite relationship. It wasn't like someone threw them together. Right. Max has known him since he was a young kid. You know, young. Right. They've known each other for years. They open up the email that their producers send them and they read this email from somebody who thinks they're being catfished. 
first they call the person on a video chat, then they go meet the person and get information from the person, then they look up the, the catfisher or whatever, then they present the facts, and then they go to wherever the person's supposed to be from and try to get them to meet. Supposedly, the person meets them for the first time and all this stuff. Now, how it really happens is the producers actually know everything. They know who the catfisher is. They know all the stuff beforehand because they're making a show. You have to think about it logically. They have to know how it's going to kind of Right, resolve. you can't waste all that no. film and everything. Or so, But Max and Neve do not know anything. Right. They actually have to do, do the work. Yeah. Right. So you have to kind of just go with the, you know, the premise. Right. Well, first of all, I feel bad for the victims sometimes because it's like they're so gullible. Yeah. You're like, come on, this guy is... Like the woman in Dirty see. John. I know. This guy, he's a model and he's... He's a Navy SEAL. Yeah, and any girls, and anytime, he's a brain just I want to say, girls, anytime a guy it's tells you girls, he's though. a Nate, but first of all, girls, anytime a guy tells you he's a Navy SEAL in the CIA, works for the government, and can't tell you what he does, be very, very wary. Yeah, he's lying. Also, if he's related to royalty, or if he's a Rockefeller. So, first of all, the thing I really like is Max and Neve. Their relationship, which is, they have a nice relationship. They're very nice people. Like, they're not like these bro-type, you know, frat right. boys. When I had never watched it, I thought maybe they were like, but once I started watching it, they are very empathetic to everyone they meet, and they are never judgmental. And even with the people who are doing the catfish, a lot of times, because most of the time, if it's not someone who's got nefarious intent, it's someone who's fat or has some kind of problem. Right. A lot of times it's a fat person. It's, it's kind of sad. It's sad, and but they are always, almost always, a couple of times I saw them get angry, but most of the time they are they're very respectful and nice to everybody. They are never... When someone's gay, like a gay guy, they're never like, they're comfortable with it. They're never yes. like, they're, they're, they don't have any problem talking to the gay guys about the relationships or anything. They're never like, right. yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> they're never like that. They're always, considering the show, they're always, I was always impressed by how empathetic they are to everybody and how they really seem to care about people. And then I also read that they do spend a lot, like five days with the person, victim. the victim. <laughs> yeah. They actually spend a lot of time with That's the thing I think that makes it less of a, voyeuristic even though it is they do have a lot of heart and their relationship is very max is probably only a few years older than neve and neve is in his late 20s i think when it starts or maybe mid 20s he's young and max has uh like premature gray so i thought he was older but then i mm-hmm. looked him up and he's not but they just have a very good relationship and they like like have this kind of older brother younger brother relationship and neve will like is very like hugs him and stuff Aww. all the time and they used to have these reunion shows but they don't anymore so after the first season, a lot of people want to know if they were. A what couple. reunions get the what the victims yes. together yes. with the fishers? Yes. yes, like they do on The Bachelor. One. Yeah, um, but they uh, people thought they were a couple because of their of their chemistry, right? Together, but they're not. But I don't know. I just really like one the show. reason. And I, I used... didn't think I would. I thought I was just watching it for some BS thing right. to watch. One you know? thing. One reason I used to watch it, and I think the reason I stopped is I got rid of cable like three or four yeah. years ago and just stopped watching random things. But one of the things I liked about it, but now I have cable again. So, and also it's on Netflix, right? So I could watch it. Hulu. Hulu. One of the if things Netflix, I like I couldn't... is I'm always interested in the stories, like the one you did about the two Rockefellers yes. and like Dirty John podcast, where someone is presenting themselves as something yes. they're not and they get caught out and how people get manipulated and like all that, like kind of 
psychological, the things people fall for. I know. Or and what why? it says about people. Fa- well, the, the thing that's interesting that I've read a couple places about the show and is one of the things people say, this is why it's a fake show, which, yes, some of it is fake because it's... All reality shows are fake. It's the way it's produced, yeah. is that... Usually it's the Cat Fisher that contacts. Like, they want to come clean. So they contact MTV and say, I've been doing this to this person and I want to come clean. Yeah. So usually they're the ones that contact MTV. But then the producers usually write the emails, which I, I figured that out because they have a sameness about them, the way they're written. But, I mean, obviously the person, the victim is contacted and they right. haven't met the person. Because lots of times a victim doesn't know they're being manipulated until somebody... I think that the victims a lot of times still believe it. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how it's actually done. But, I mean, you have to be a logical person when you're watching this and just realize. Right. But there are some of it that's real. Like, when they first meet, that's real. People can't act surprised. That reaction is real. Right. Max and Neve don't know who they're going to meet or what the situation's going to be. They don't know that. The producers do. You know what? The cameras are there. You see them. Right. They show the cameras. They show that, you know, that people are being filmed. You know that the camera, like, huh. people are like, of course they knew who, the, you know, like the people who are naysaying it. Right. Of course they know who it is. Why is the camera crew always already at the person's house? It's like, no shit. We right. know that, but. Right. You have but to. still, the person has not met this person yet. When they first meet, that is real. Right. And when Neve and Max meet the person, it's And also with reality TV, just by the nature of how TV shows are produced and stuff, you can't judge them so much on how real is this really. Yeah. But what's its entertainment value to me and what is it presenting to me? Because you can't do a reality show if you don't know certain outcomes you have and to. things. You can't like, do that. I always think of if I had like a, like a, a webcam in my house or something, it would be the most boring thing in the yeah. world. So we'll be back in two weeks. Hopefully. Well, we're yeah. We're trying to get on a schedule. We're getting on a schedule because we have our other podcast too. And now that I've got Groovy a full-time tube. job again and back in my house, we and should be now she's farther away from me, so we can't. We have to schedule things. Yes, a bit. it'll force us to be more organized. Thank you for the reviews we've gotten for this, yes. and thank you for listening. We we even have listeners in Russia now. Yes. Yeah, so it's part. Maybe it's because we're friends with the Trumps, so they're. Oh yeah, yeah right. Joking about yeah, Ivanka and I hang out yeah. all the time. So you can rate and review us. You can go to our uh, website. Apple Podcasts, yeah. which I'm having a hard time with I know, them. me too. I still call it what, iTunes, whatever. Well, I'm not having with the new, yeah. Right. You can find our website, Crime and Stuff Online. All our, All other our previous oh, episodes yes. are on there. If you want to like go back and listen to episode two because you can't remember what I said about Todd Colehep or whatever. Yes. You can donate. Thank you to our donors Thank on you Patreon. To our patrons, yes. And... You can and follow us. Get the most out of it. Listen to GroovyTube too. Yes, and you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I, <laughs> say, uh, Instagram. I just have a hard time with Instagram. I know we need Twitter. To I'm put stuff fine. On. I, it's just so I'm much. Fine. There's so much social media. Yeah. So until next time. Thank you. Thanks Bye. for listening. Bill Ricca. I know. I used to work with some of them. Bill Ricca. Is it Groton or Groton? I say Groton. Who cares? It's Connecticut. <gasps> I'm going to put this on pause a minute because I want to eat this Dorito that I've been holding. <laughs> I want to pee.